You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, this is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is that I'm not going to be talking about basic meditation. I'm, um, I have started the beginning class, but it's on uh, the east side on Tuesday nights. Um, but this class is really intended for people who have a practice. So if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what it is that I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, we've been going slowly through the Manual of Insight, the new translation of the Mahasi Seda text, um, the Manual of, of Karnaka Samadhi. Karnaka Samadhi is a Pali word that means momentary insight concentration practice. And um, we're talking about the contemplation of mind. So if you're familiar with the Satipatthana Sutta, mind would be the third foundation. And tonight's topic is uh, mental states. Craving, lust, and desire are called mind affected by lust. When this state of mind occurs, noted as desire, desire. It may disappear when you note it just once or twice. If it persists, continue to note it repeatedly until it finally fades away. When the mind is free of wanting and liking, it becomes pure and clear, a mind unaffected by lust. We should note this state of mind as it is, as described in the Pali passage. Tirabhiku understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust and mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. Anger, frustration, hate, hostility, and cruelty are called mind affected by hate. When one of these occurs, noted as angry, and so on, it may disappear when you note it just once or twice. If it continues, note it repeatedly until it disappears. Eventually it will vanish completely and the mind becomes pure and clear, a mind unaffected by hate. You should also note this state of mind as it is according to the Pali passage. He understands a mind affected by hate as a mind affected by hate, a mind unaffected by hate as a mind unaffected by hate. The mind that is simply confused or restless is in the grip of ignorance or delusion. It is called a mind affected by delusion. Sensual thoughts, hypocrisy, and delusion of identity are considered states of mind rooted in desire and affected by delusion. Unpleasant states of mind such as fear, worry, grief, sadness, aversion, jealousy, and regret are all states of mind rooted in hate and affected by delusion. When any of these states of mind occur, note them as they are. When the states of mind have come to an end, the mind becomes pure and clear, a mind unaffected by delusion. You should also note it according to the Pali passage, He understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by delusion and mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. 
The moment a state of mind arises, one observes either one's own mind or another's mind, or some, sometimes one's own mind and sometimes another's mind. This is called contemplating mind as mind. Um, <clears throat> so greed, anger, anger and delusion, you've probably heard that before, is one of the ways of practicing. Uh, in some sense, uh, when we talk about the mind states, uh, um, we're examining uh, the filter that affects the way that we form mental objects. So you have the capacity to sense the five senses and the mind, uh, you have the quality of the sensing experience, and then you have the thing that you make the mind, uh, the sensing experience into, and in that moment of uh, attaching to the sensing experience is when some of these defilements of, say, a greed, anger, or delusion attach. They don't attach to the sensing experience itself, they attach in the, uh, they uh, attach uh, as you attach to the sensing experience. Attach in um, Buddhist parlance means that you, uh, you connect to or cling to uh, sensing experience. Hi. I'm sorry. No problem. Grab a chair, sure. Grab a chair or grab a cushion, whichever you like. I'll grab a chair for you if you want. There are some shorter ones too. There's some folding chairs in the kitchen. Okay. And if if there isn't another one of these. Okay, sorry to come in so late, and then I have one person who's Traditional Buddhism, there are eight states that you monitor craving, aversion, unconsciousness, um, uh, restlessness and agitation, and sloth and torpor. Those are the ordinary mind states. And then the esoteric mind states are um, whether the mind is, um, so I can remember them, concentrated or not concentrated whether the mind is liberated or not liberated, whether the mind is surpassable or unsurpassable. Um, there's one other. Um, here, I'll read the text. When experiencing any of these other states of mind, a meditator should know, also note them accordingly, an indolent state of mind, that would be uh, sleepiness, a distracted mind, uh, restless, a concentrated state of mind, an unconcentrated state of mind, a liberated state of mind. When noting a uh, mind is temporarily liberated from mental defilements and the unliberated mind, and when there is no awareness and the wandering mind is subject to mental defilements. The following four states of consciousness occur only to those who have achieved jhana, so that they are not relevant for a practitioner of pure insight meditation a developed state of mind, an undeveloped state of mind, an inferior state of mind, and a superior state of mind. Um, 
in, in uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, they would describe that as, uh, rather than inferior or superior, as surpassable or unsurpassable. So, do you know, everybody know jhana practice, high concentrated states? If you're in the fourth jhana, you're considered to have an unsurpassable state of mind. And if you're not in the fourth jhana, you're considered to have a surpassable state of mind because you could go up to the fourth jhana. Liberated mind would mean that you've had stream entry, and, and if you haven't had a, had stream entry, then you have an unliberated mind. There's no way to know uh, a liberated mind until you've had the experience of liberation, so that uh, there isn't that contrast. Really, all you can know is the un, unliberated mind. Um, we're talking about mind state, so the evaluation of mind state. We had a long conversation about that yesterday. Um, I like to diagram it in the sense that you have the sensing experience, which is a pure experience um, of, of just the contact of the object that can be sensed and the capacity to sense it. Um, there's a quality to that experience which is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Some um, experiences are difficult to sense and some are pleasant to sense. Um, in the, the Mahasi text, he uh, suggests that people who don't meditate or who are new at meditation have the experience of only pleasant or unpleasant body sen sensing sensations. And that as you develop a practice, you, you begin to recognize actually that most sensing experiences are, are neutral. And that's one of the ways that you can gauge the development of your practice. Um, so, we call the sensing experience absolute reality, um, and I, I want to uh, always emphasize that we use English translations of Pali words, and we often use English words that uh, are approximate what the Pali word means, because we don't have a word for what the Pali word means. So when we say absolute reality or ultimate reality, what we mean, we don't mean that that's actually how it is. We mean that that's what we can sense. Is that, that clear? So uh, when we say it's the ultimate reality, we don't mean that, that we have any way of knowing that. It's just that we have a way of knowing what the sensing experience is. Um, we can sense uh, the five senses plus the mind. So, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and the mind. In the West, we're not really conditioned to understand what the sensing activity of the mind is, and so that takes some conceptualization, but then you can begin to watch it as a sensing experience. The mind uh, sequences individual sensing experience from all the senses, so you you have a flow of sensing experiences, which is the sensing of mind. You also have, which you can track, where your attention goes. So if you, if you just open up and let your mind, uh, your awareness go wherever it goes, it, it, it will direct itself to uh, sensing experiences, and that's the activity of mind. 
you recognize patterns in sensing experience and you associate conditioned responses to the present moment sensing experience. So for instance, you're listening to the sound of my voice, uh, you're hearing sound, maybe you find the quality of the sensing of the sound of my voice as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, depending on how uh, it lands for you. But if you're taking the buzzing noise that I'm making and you're associating meaning to it in the English language, it means that you've been conditioned to understanding the English language and that the, the, the activity of mind is associating that particular pattern of sound to the conditioning. Is that making sense? That's the activity of mind as a sense. And then you have mind, sita, or the third foundation of mindfulness, which is the mind state through which the ultimate experience is made into conceptual reality. So if you're looking around the room and you've attached to the sensing experience of sight, you've made the room solid. You've made the floor solid, the ceiling solid, the wall solid, you've made the people solid, you've differentiated sex, uh, you've differentiated clothing from body, all of that stuff that happens uh, is a, a, an activity of mind, but the, the part that we're looking for in, uh, is the quality of the mind through which the sensing experience is filtered as it's fixated into the experience of somethingness. Is that, are you following me on this? Uh -huh. So if you were to inhabit ultimate reality or just pure sensing, then what you would see is uh, most or most people would see a not very solid flow of dots of color and grayscale. And then the English word for um, what the activities is you attach to a particular pattern of that flow and it solidifies it or fixates it in the moment into something that appears to be solid. That's what the word attach means. So attached means that you fixated and the world is solid and non-attached means that you haven't fixated to the sensing experience and it's just a flow of energy. So that's This is like a more literal way of attachment and non-attachment. It's not just no preference or equanimity. It's literally not fixating right. reality. Right. In, 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 in a strict definition, it's whether you fixated or you haven't fixated the sensing experience into something. Um, the reason that you want to be able... There's no preference in the fixating or not fixating. Uh, one of the things that happens to us, though, is that we get so conditioned into fixating things that we don't actually have a choice about whether we fixate it or we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, you were giving a, that example of the movie the, the Room or something where the child is born in, in a dark space and hadn't seen the outside world for five years. Would that be something that when he comes out and actually sees the tree and doesn't know 
sense because he's what what it would reg register as is just flow. And if he were able to fixate it, he wouldn't have a previous database experience to attach to it, and so the mind would be churning in a way to try and figure out what it is. According to your language that you were talking about. Right. It just sounds I go to Miramar every year for a month, and it's a tonal language, and um, every word has four definitions depending on the tone in which you say it, um, and the, the amount of social embarrassment one has to endure is <laughs> <as> monumental. <laughs> they also do not say no. They say yes in a tone that means no. <laughs> they say yes in a tone that means maybe under certain circumstances. And if you don't pick it up, it, uh, they get quite surprised that you've uh, misunderstood. It's, uh, it's hilarious. Um, <clears throat> if there's a few ways that you can look at this in terms of meditation. Um, one is, one of the best ways to do it is with sound. If you listen for sounds that you don't know what they are, and that that process lasts for longer than half a second, you'll be able to watch the mind attempting to identify and fixate it. Um, the, the body-mind runs about a half a second behind what's actually happening. That's the, the, the length of time it takes to process uh, the stimulus. Uh, and it, has a, it smooths over the delay. So you probably have the experience of hearing my voice in the moment that I'm saying it, but I've actually said it a half a second ago. And you're smoothing over the delay. Um, one of the reasons in sports they talk about playing from the zone is because if you play from the conscious mind, the ball was, had already gone by half a second ago when you swing your racket, and so you can't play from the self. You have to play from the unconscious. Um, processing speeds vary. Uh, it takes about three-eighths of a second to process urgent material, uh, and urgent material always supersedes everything else in the queue. And it takes about a half a second to process positive experience. So you can get into jags where everything seems to be negative because there isn't time to process the positive experience, even though the positive experience is there. We have about, we have a very narrow bandwidth in consciousness of 16 bits per second out of the 11 million which the body-mind processes. And so we have we, what we're really getting is kind of uh, a report of what the body-mind is going to do. Uh, and, it, it, and we don't originate uh, decisions from the conscious mind. It's simply there so we can veto a bad idea. So it's also a way to begin to think about it. After all of the sensing data is taken in and the body-mind is formulated what it's going to do and it has set in action the, the process, you'll get a, a, the red veto button will flash and it will say, we're about to do this. Good idea? And you can hit the veto button and it will stop the whole process. That's this process of 
So one of the reasons meditation is so useful is that it trains the procedural memory which is unconscious. So if you train the procedural memory enough, you don't have to veto too much because the, the bad or the unskillful actions that you might take, you can train yourself out of doing. Um, we learn and are conditioned early. So one of the things I like to talk about is attachment views uh, in, in a kind of expansive way of talking about view. So uh, the first of the Eightfold Path is right view or right understanding and that the way that we attach to things and the view that it creates, we want to understand as uh, insubstantial. Some people use the word empty, um, not permanent, not an accurate, rep not necessarily an accurate representation of what's happening. You sense something and it's, and then you make it into something, and it goes through the filtering of the mind in the process of doing that, and depending on the mind state that you're in at the moment that it happens, it can be totally distorting of what you create out of it. If the mind is angry, the world looks very different than if the mind is happy. If the mind is tired, it looks very different. If the mind is agitated, it looks very different. And so you want to begin to track what mind state is present so that you can anticipate what the distortion is going to be and you can, and you can use uh, and develop metacognition to know that this is a distorted view and, and, and prevent yourself from taking action so that you're not creating karma from delusion or karma from aversion or karma from uh, lust. So there's a lot of lust in the news lately. <laughs> <laughs> sense. So in this rhythm of meditating you want to touch into the sensing experience and then touch into what you make it into and touch into the sensing experience and touch in, into what you're making into which is developing a metacognitive uh, accuracy examination. Um, it says here, uh, which I read a little bit earlier, Observation of states of mind as they are from moment to moment is called contemplation of mind. If one focuses on enumeration and itemization of states of mind, considering that there are eight types of mind rooted in lust and they are called mind affected by lust and so on, uh, this is not true contemplation of mind but only conceptualization. Uh, this is why the commentary says, the moment a state of mind arises, one observes either one's own mind or another's mind, or sometimes one's own mind and sometimes another's. This is called contemplating mind as mind. Um, so, in the Satipatthana Sutta, we talk about mindfulness of self, mindfulness of other, and mindfulness of the interaction of self and other. That's the one of the that instruction is in the refrain of the Satipatthana Sutta. It's repeated 17 times through the Sutta. Um, we can understand or have a, 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 um, a little bit of help in recognizing the distortion of our own mind by comparing it to a mind of someone else. If you're both having the same experience, you're both going to experience 
what's happening through your conditioned mind and if you can open up and have an intimate conversation about how each of you are experiencing the same thing you you not only understand the other person's point of view but you can understand your own point of view better your own mind better in doing that rather than insisting that your view is the correct view when that you know what's actually happening we don't actually have the capacity to know what's happening that's not how our how the human body is set up it doesn't evaluate what's happening it evaluates how it connects to our conditioning and what that means to us so you could say to somebody this is what i think is happening and this is what it means to me but you couldn't say this is what's happening is that making sense and uh, when you really begin to understand that in comparing how you're experiencing something intimately and uh, authentically with somebody else who also is willing to do that the same you they are revealed and also you are revealed to yourself your own conditioning is revealed to you does that make sense so this is a really uh, extraordinary gift that you can give to somebody by being perfectly authentic in an expression of what your experience is um one of the things i like to talk about attachment because a conditioning depending on what the conditioning is tends to form these very stark predictable views and because their their origins are so early and you see through the view so early you it's very hard to recognize what that is unless it's described in detail and you can begin to see the function of it um i was just on retreat with dan brown and he said the new research is showing that the the installation of the original concept of self happens between 2 and 5 months of age your consciousness your your autobiographical memory hasn't started yet right so you're you're just in procedural memory at this point and so these early installations of of who am i uh, are procedural and unconscious and they operate uh, unconsciously if you don't really uh, put energy into figuring out what's there what is that constant distortion based on the modeling of self and also from attachment you we understand what our expectation of the world is i'm really tired t- today and i i um, didn't see uh, motorcycles twice in traffic um when i'm normally more alert i do see them but i looked there was nothing there and i pulled into the street and then i looked again and there was a motorcycle there that was obvious that the motorcycle had been there the first time i looked my mind just didn't put it in the image of the street so you really want to begin to soften up this uh idea that that you know everything that's happening we we get so comfortable with that idea that because we can see it it's it must be there because we see what's there but actually we see 
the mental image that we've created filtered through the mind state that we're in, then it could be wildly off from what's actually there. Is that making sense? <coughs> so if you begin to understand, uh, I, I love the poetry of traditional Buddhism and uh, those kinds of thoughts, but they haven't um, been that useful to me in terms of recognizing what the views are that are there and distorting. Um, I'm doing a, a, a visualization meditation now um, and I'm working with the capacity to imagine as the object of meditation and it's very interesting to, to see how even the capacity to imagine is limited by the view. So that if you see yourself as incapable, you won't be, you won't be able to imagine outcomes where you were capable. Uh, and so that you, you, this uh, process of, of paying attention to mind states and developing this, uh, we call it in the West metacognition, which I find hilarious, mostly because the first papers in, in uh, Western psychology around metacognition were published in the early 70s, so 40 years, 50 years ago. Whereas in the Buddhist meditation, 2,600 years ago, they've been talking about this, this function of metacognition. So uh, awareness of awareness, tracking that process. So we're also wanting you to create this space between consciousness and awareness, which knows consciousness. So you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when they meet a consciousness of that sensing experience arises and awareness knows that it's arising. When the object is no longer in touch with the capacity to sense the consciousness of that moment of arising ends and awareness knows that. One of the things about view that's, that can be so confusing is uh, in terms of thinking that things are solid and uh, in, that have, they have intrinsic uh, measure is that awareness is almost always continuous. So we can think back, say, when we were five years old and have an experience of awareness and that seems unchanging between then and now, even though it's very clear that the body is different than you're not, none of us are in a five-year-old body anymore, even though if we think back on our five-year-old self, we may have an experience that we're the same person that we were, because the experience of awareness is the same. Is that helpful? So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a lack of clarity around awareness being different than the momentary consciousness that arises or the body that we're in. None of us are actually the same as we were when we even walked in the door a half hour ago because uh, everything, all of the processes have continued to happen. Cells have died, cells have been born, the comp composition of us is different. Um, is that, is that, I sometimes think that it just makes it worse. <laughs> trying to describe it. 
there's tremendous freedom in moving out of identification with each of these consciousnesses because there's so much pain in them. Awareness is really neutral. There's very little suffering in awareness. And if you can make this figure ground reversal and shift out of identification with consciousness and attachment into this place of awareness, your suffering level will drop down to practically nothing. If you can effortlessly come and go from consciousness each time the conscious experience becomes too much or overwhelming, you can step into awareness and out of the suffering that might come from that. If you can step out of consciousness, you don't identify that experience as who you are, so you no longer need to defend that moment of consciousness as if that's who you are. So you're not reactive, you're not defensive around it. You open to this experience of this is what I'm thinking, this is what I think is going on. What do you think is going on? This is what it means to me. What does it mean to you? And not uh, from that fragile, frightened place need to demand that everybody agree with you and your perception of, of how it is. Is that making sense? Then suddenly it's really interesting if somebody doesn't experience it the same way you do because it reveals them to you and also it reveals uh, uh, the difference in conditioning. Um, we all grew up in, in whatever kind of family system we grew up in with all of those definitions that were given to us at the time that we were available to learn them. And it's nice to be able to normalize them across different kinds of people, but they mean different things. You know, um, for instance, I'm going to get braces because I have a bad bite and I keep chipping my teeth. When I was a kid and it was time for me to have braces, my dad pulled down my lower lip and said, they don't look that crooked, I don't want to spend the money. And so I've had broken teeth and pain all of my life, so I have a bad bite, and so I'm going to fix it myself. But it's an interesting, do you know what I'm talking about in this? That you, I didn't really know that I had a bad bite until all of my teeth were broken from having a bad bite. You know what I'm saying? My orthodontist, when I was 12, knew that that was going to happen. Um, but did you grow in a family, up in a family where uh, the person who had the money in the family controlled the money so that you didn't get good care? Or did they, did they have a different attitude about money and a different attitude of care in there? And can you open to the, that possibility? Is that making sense? No. So I'm, I want to do a meditation on mind states. And we'll use the basic um, meditations that were um, described there. So noting whether the mind is uh, um, filled with craving, uh, whether the mind is filled with aversion, whether the mind is unconscious. Uh, or whether the mind is equanimous. In the text, it said that, the, that, that there were these other states of mind that it could also be. 
So, um, craving, aversion, unconsciousness, uh, equanimity, and something else. So, basically five labels. I like to use um, wanting for craving as the label. Because craving typically is wanting something different than it, what is. Uh, aversion is hatred or anger or not wanting, so I like to use the label not wanting, not wanting what is. Um, in unconsciousness, you end up in thinking in order to be unconscious, and so you don't typically label uh, uh, unconsciousness until it's already happened, so it's a coming back. You note that you've been thinking, and then you come back. If the mind balances out, craving is not there, aversion is not there, uh, uh, you're staying with the object of meditation, which is the mind state itself, and uh, you're equanimous. Everybody know what equanimity means? The absence of craving, aversion, and unconsciousness is equanimity. And I like to note peace. And if there's a mind state that's present that's different than those then you can say something. Is that making sense? And we'll do a, a 10 minutes of breath counting to um, develop some concentration. How would you say your concentration is? Pretty good? Low, medium, high? What do you think? High. All right. All right. So let's do um, counting... Third person. Like, ah. Which the labels are just wanting, not wanting, peace, and something? Not wanting, wanting, thinking, peace, and something. Good. Well, thank you for coming.